Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'll be reading the scripture today from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. This is the word of the Lord. All right, while they are getting ready to go, and as they're going, we're going to take a little bit of a poll. I want to find out who we've got in our congregation. So if you were born between the years 1946 and 1963, you just put up your hands. If you are a boomer, you put up your hands. Can you just look around, everybody? and see all the old, uh, wise people in our congregation. Okay, there may even be a few that are a little older than that, and that's okay. Uh, how about if you were born between 64 and 79? If you're a Gen Xer, let's look around and just see how complex the people in our congregation are. Yes, okay, Gen Xers. How about you millennials like me, born 1980 to 1994? Look around, can you taste the entitlement? Can you feel it? Can you sense it? Yeah, okay, good. And how about 
Gen Z. This is those of you born between 1995 and 2010. Most of them are in the just are just left or just went to kids, but if we have any like 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, a few of you perhaps around Gen Z. Yeah, Generation Z. Have you heard of it? Heard of them? Yeah, typically dubbed the I generation because this is the first generation that has existed. As long as they've existed, there has always been the internet. They don't know what the world is like without the internet. They don't know what the world is like without mobile phones. If you want to think about this for an example, on the oldest end, those born in 1995, as they grew up, they may have just barely had an idea of what dial-up internet is. But on the youngest end, the seven-year-olds, right, they likely already know how to operate any type of smartphone or tablet or whatever, and it's even possible that they have their own. So because of the rate at the, uh, the pace of technology, the development of technology, this generation is being exposed to things so much sooner and so much quicker than anyone else. As a matter of fact, there's a great thinker, his name's Neil Postman, and he, he talks about this idea of purposeful naivete. Purposeful naivete. Essentially what he's saying, in the human experience, there are certain things that you should not be exposed to until you're of a certain age, right? This is why we don't start talking to five and six-year-olds about getting prepared for marriage, because in the human experience, marriage shouldn't come until later in life. At the time of his writing, that would have been somewhat modern for us, 20, 21, 22 to 25, as opposed to Bible times where like we're talking 14, 15, depending, we're talking about the global west here, right? And so because they have all of this access to the internet, typically having it right in their pocket, they are being exposed to things at a much faster rate and they are seeing things and hearing things and they have access to all of this information but because they're so young, they don't necessarily have the wisdom that they need to make sense of it all. And get this, there are 2.65 billion of them on the planet, which makes up something like 30% of the global population. Something that may be the most important distinctive for us, being a, in a church context in the global West, is that Gen Z is the first generation to be raised completely in a post-Christian time. Let's just stop and think about what this actually means. Gen Z is the first generation that is being raised during a time where there is no longer a significant Christian influence impacting the culture at large. And so you may be thinking, but hold on, I listen to Life 100.3 all the time. Or we've got like Pure Flix or GodTube or whatever other thing is. And we've got all these Christian books and, and my kids are always exposed to it. To which I'm like, okay, I hear you. Good for you parents and guardians and aunts and uncles as you're trying to raise up the next generation for sure. Those are good things, but they are not making an impact on the culture at large. They are not steering the culture at large. Uh, to give us a little bit of an illustration to understand what it actually means to live in a post-Christian generation, I'll give you a comparative illustration that talks about the idea of what it was like for former generations and their connection to Christianity, spirituality, religion in general, and then what it's like for Generation Z, okay? So imagine uh, you are wanting to go on a trip to Vancouver. You heard about Vancouver, you've known some people that have been to Vancouver, uh, you've got maybe a family member or more, maybe your parents have been to Vancouver, they've told you about it, and so you decide, I think I want to go check out Vancouver, and what, they, what you do is you get online and you start to compare travel packages, right? And so you might say, okay, well, Air Canada, a little bit more expensive, more than likely going to experience some delays, but the food options are pretty good, the entertainment's not bad, and the planes are nicer. Maybe you look at WestJet, and with WestJet you say, well, it's a little bit more of an economy ride, uh, there's a it's arguably 
that they're going to be on time. Like, arguably be more likely. We don't actually know with plane schedules, but it might be a little bit better. I mean, their entertainment is usually not so good. Uh, the planes are a little bit older. The food's not so great. Uh, you are making a consumer decision, which is going to be the best route for me to choose to get to Vancouver, because you already have the interest in getting to Vancouver. Okay? So if we're thinking about older generations and their exposure to spirituality or their exposure to Christianity, older generations likely knew someone, a family member, a friend, someone like that who had been to church, had been in a church circle. Older generations living in a time when Christianity was still a primary influencer in the culture, maybe they had even gone to a church event, a concert, or, or whatnot. You following with me so far? Let's apply this same, this same illustration to Generation Z. Gen Z does not care about Vancouver. Many of them aren't even sure that Vancouver exists. <laughs> if any of them have even had a, a hear, if any of them heard of Vancouver, it's because maybe they got dragged somewhere, they heard about it being mocked online or something, but it's very unlikely that they even know someone who's been there themselves. On top of that, they have no interest in flying to Vancouver because they are terrified of planes. So when we're thinking about what a post-Christian generation is, we are living in a totally different day to day. And, and this might be cause for us to say, that's the problem with this generation, right? And so us older folks, we might sit back and condemn and, and point our finger, but then we always forget this one little detail, and that is we raised them. We're responsible for their upbringing. And so if you are in Gen Z, I just need you to know that I feel for you. I'm not by any means here to rip on you or to give you a hard time. I'm just here to say, like, I can't possibly imagine. And I'm pretty close. I'm a millennial, but, but not still close enough to you. I, I can't really imagine what it's like for you to have parents that are maybe interested in God and following God, but you are going into school where every day you're being exposed to something that is completely other than Christianity. Right, where you can't even have regular conversations with your friends because they don't even have a clue who Vancouver is or who Jesus is and where Vancouver and all that kind of thing. Lost in my own illustration. Right? And we've got to remember that just as we are responsible for raising them up, um, this is not a hopeless generation by any means. I love young people, spent a, por a good portion of my life, more than a third of my life, loving them and ministering to them. And, and one of the things I've seen is that the passion that, that Gen Z has, the entrepreneurial wiring that they have, the desire they have to uh, be a part of social justice uh, causes and things like that, I'm hoping and praying that Gen Z, as they move into positions of power and influence in politics and whatever else, that they will be the ones who begin to reverse and correct all of the generational errors from the past, the ones that we've committed. So why are we talking about Gen Z? Because as we think about this post-Christian culture that we live in, we actually get a great picture of what a modern-day Babylon looks like. So for the past number of weeks, we've been working through this series in Daniel called Foreigners, right? And, and the idea is that Babylon at the time of Daniel was this godless culture. It had actually, King Nebuchadnezzar had actually removed God, physical items that would help the Jewish people think about God. He had moved those things out of the way. He had gotten rid of them, and they were living in a time where they were forced to think about and worship and spend their time and their money on anything other than the living God. Sounds like really similar to the time that we're living in right now. And so as we come into our passage, we're looking at Daniel chapter 5, and thank you, Serena, for reading that longer uh, passage. Vijay and I were joking about how in order to get, uh, you know, the scripture readings have to be a little bit longer to kind of tell bigger pieces of the story. 
Um, and so thank you for, for reading that. As we come into chapter 5, we're maybe in the midst of a familiar story, right? Um, if the story's not familiar to you, at least what takes place in it probably is, right? This whole idea of the writings on the wall. We've heard of this in pop culture. Maybe you've been in really tough business meetings where you've heard uh, one colleague say to another, hey, you know, like, the writing is on the wall here. Right? And, and that has particular implications, but maybe we're not, particular, we're not too familiar with the story. And, and as we read through chapter 5, we actually see that there's a whole lot of familiarity, or similarity rather, from other chapters that we've already gone through. Chapter 2, right? What happens? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He freaks out, gets it interpreted by Daniel. He repents. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He freaks out, gets interpreted by Daniel. He ends up spending seven years with this bout of insanity before finally snapping out of that and, and repenting once and for all. And so chapter 5 follows a similar structure, but some of the details have changed. First things first, we've got a new king on the scene, and his name is Belshazzar. And what he's doing, this young king, this new king, is he's throwing a party. There's over a thousand guests, and he's got his wives and his concubines, and all these people from his kingdom are joining him at this feast. And this is not an uncommon thing. Even today, politicians, kings, people of power throw parties in order to lavish their wealth on, on the masses. Why? So they will maintain their favor. Let me spoil you with things so I'll keep your vote, right? We see this coming up in news all the time today where there's actually a major perversion of all this. So I'll keep your vote. This is what they were doing. And they would want to spoil them. But we see that as the meal was going on, this was actually more than just a regular meal. This was actually a worship service. There's worship happening here. And so as they're meeting, it says in verse 4, as they drank their wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And one of the ways that they were doing this is they were actually drinking their wine out of the cups, the goblets, that were taken from the holy temple in Jerusalem. So if we remember back in the beginning of the book, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and besieged Jerusalem, he took all of the holy religious spiritual artifacts out of the place of honor that they were in, meant to remind the Israelite people of who their God was, took that away and repurposed it for himself. And now we've got Belshazzar drinking out of these cups, which were meant to be drunken from only by holy spiritual priests. They're drinking from this, and as they're doing it, they're intentionally worshiping other gods other than the God that they knew it had come from. So if we think about this, Belshazzar is essentially making a power move here. He knew that in the crowd there would have been people who were taken over when, when Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem. And he's saying, you know what? Not only am I king, but I'm better than your God because, look, your God answers to me. Your God is a servant of mine because he has provided me with these cups, these plates, with these things to eat and drink out of. And it's right in the middle of them blaspheming the living God that he breaks in. And this uninvited dinner guest of sorts shows up. It's right at that point when God shows up and he, what looks like a hand, begins to carve wor words into the plaster above where they were eating. Now, this was not a figment of their imagination. The thousand or more people that were there, all of them saw this. And they were terrified by it. Verse 6 actually tells us that when he saw this, Belshazzar's face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together, all of which is clearly a description of a terrified man. That, that phrase, the, his legs became weak, uh, a better translation is actually that as he was watching this, the, 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 the how did I put it here, the, the joints of his loins 
were literally loosened. So if you want to let your imagination run for a second, as he fell to the ground in terror, King Belshazzar, the one who thought he was more powerful than God, is soiling himself with fear because of what he was seeing. He's terrified. And he doesn't know what to do. And so with pure terror coursing through his veins, he does all he knows, and he calls for who? The counselors, the wise men, the people in his kingdom who were known, who were hired, their purpose in life was to serve the king, was to serve him by interpreting and making sense of all of these mysterious happenings. But again, regardless of their uh, potential brilliance or whatever they were supposed to have, they come in and they offer no help. As a result, verse 8 and 9, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew even more pale, and his nobles were baffled. My wise men can't save me. Now I'm even more terrified because where is my hope? And clearly he hadn't heard of Daniel, or at least not until now. The queen mom, his mother, comes and says that she's heard of a man in the kingdom who has this reputation of being wise, of being smart. She says this incredible thing. He has the spirit of the holy gods living within him. He's helped your, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, the king before you. He will be able, if you bring him in, he will be able to tell you what all of these other wise men cannot tell you. He will be able to help you. And so Daniel comes in, and when he does, Belshazzar says, I've heard that you are this incredible, incredibly wise man and you've got the spirit of the gods. If you're able to help me, I'll give you a gold chain and I'll dress you in purple ro- in a purple robe, purple being a, sim- a symbol of, of royalty and wealth. And I'll, 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 I'll promote you to the third most important position in all of the kingdom uh, of Babylon. And, and so Daniel comes in and we'll find out later that he has no interest in those gifts, but he still knows his purpose in this moment is to answer the question he's been asked, which is, can you interpret this for me? And he says, yes, I can interpret it for you. But before he does, he gives Belshazzar a strong warning. He says, God gave the king before you all of his power, all of his rulership. And, and when he got proud, God took it all away. Now, Belshazzar would have known the significance of what that meant. Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years out in the wilderness roaming around looking like a beast. That story would have traveled on and on and on. Belshazzar would have known that story, yet he was still allowing pride to get to him, and Daniel is warning him. He says, you're worse than your father. You haven't learned from his mistakes. Actually, in verse 22, it says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, talking, so you, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of these things. Instead, you've set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot, be, cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's why he sent this inscription. And so Daniel is saying very clearly, Belshazzar, your entire existence rests in the palm of the hand of the living God. As a matter of fact, all of Babylon rests in the hands of the one true living God. And Daniel had seen this story play out before, and so he had great confidence that even though this king was acting the way he was, he could speak boldly towards him because he had faith that God was in the midst of it all. And so he provides an interpretation. Mene, mene, essentially meaning God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. See how he's speaking in the past tense to something that's happening in the moment? He's saying, it's over for you. 
Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and you've been found wanting. To be found wanting essentially means you are deficient. You are not a good king. You are not ruling the way God would have you rule. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Doesn't this all sound familiar? Almost like, haven't we heard this story before? Like, full disclosure, as I was preparing for this over the past week, part of me is like, did I already preach this sermon? Or did Vijay already cover this? And then part of me is like, maybe I could just use my notes from a few weeks ago, and nobody will have really noticed. Right? Because the story has such incredible repetition. Five chapters, and we've told the same, a similar type of story three or four times already. And as I thought about this, that's when it clicked. Oh, that's the point. There's nothing new under the sun. Every king that would rule in Babylon would fall into the same trap. They would all think they're bigger and better than God, and they would all be completely wrong about that. They'd all be full of pride. They'd all be blaspheming. They'd all try to defy him. And again and again, we would see God break in and give a vivid picture, whether it's a, a dream to Nebuchadnezzar or, or this writing on the wall, this inscription on the wall to Belshazzar. God breaks in and says, no, 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 you are not in charge. You are not the true king. I'm God. I'm the one who's actually in control, which tells us that the corruption of Babylon is repetitive. It's the same old story that keeps playing out. And so as we're following the biblical narrative of all of scripture, or even just in these five chapters so far in Daniel, should we be surprised that the next king that comes along is worse than the other? When the next king that came is a product of the king before? Should we be surprised that a godless nation isn't producing a God-fearing king or ruler? And so that actually gives us a picture of the world that we're living in right now. Should we be surprised that Generation Z is the way that it is? No. Because it's actually coming as a result of God slowly, slowly, slowly being pushed out. Not that he's trying to go away, but being pushed out and being viewed as not as important anymore in our culture. And that's the repetition of Babylon in our day, and our modern-day Babylon. That's the repetition of Babylon that we read about in Scripture. But there's something else that's repetitive. It's not just the corruption that's repetitive. Because, again, we've also seen that God repeatedly breaks in and is faithful to his followers and merciful to those who are in opposition of him. Something inside me, when I'm reading stories where there's, a, where there's an enemy, where there's a villain, right? Whenever that's happening, I just am waiting for something bigger than them to break in and absolutely take them out, destroy them, decimate them, right? I don't know a lot about comic books, but when I watch those movies where there's this arch enemy, this villain that just seems impossible to take out, I am waiting for the moment when he is just destroyed, obliterated, right? And yet I do that even sometimes when I'm reading scripture, and sometimes I even do that, maybe not to that extreme, but with, with people who might maybe enemies of mine are more difficult to get away with. God, would you just come in and deal with them? Would you just take them away? Would you get rid of this problem, this repetitive thing that I keep experiencing as I interact with them? But there's the thing about God. God is love. And so when he breaks in, he breaks in and gives everybody a chance. When he broke in and gave Nebuchadnezzar these dreams, these dreams that terrified him for the purpose of shocking him, and not being able to be explained by any human, essentially what God was saying is, I am giving you a chance, but your only chance is if you turn to me. And then with Belshazzar, the same story plays out. He breaks in, he writes on the wall, this is an act of mercy. Even though, when it's interpreted, the prophecy is, is, is hardcore. <laughs> it's intense. It's judgment. 
You haven't been the king that you've been called to. But Daniel is, is saying this, and as he's doing it, he is saying there's a chance if you turn to God, if you do repent, if you do be like, if you will be like your father. So there's a repetition in God's mercy and grace as he breaks in compassionately. There's this other repetition. This is kind of where I want us to settle in. That is, Daniel is repetitively perseverant in everything that he does. He is constantly persevering. The same story playing out over and over. And you got to be thinking, he's like, again, I got to go in there because the wise men, they can't do this. Okay. And I don't know what his attitude is. I'm kind of reading that in a little bit. But you got to think when you have to go do the same thing again, it's like, I've been here before, right? In my place, it's like, didn't we just clean this up? Did we not just clean this up? Did you clean this up? Oh, you did. Okay, okay. And we're back. Like, again, I got to do this? Okay, I got to do this one more time. There's this repetition. There's this perseverance that Daniel plays out. So talk to me. When, when you think about the idea of perseverance, what comes to mind? Give me an example, something. One word, two words. Perseverance makes you think of? Perseverance makes you think of? Parenting. Okay, what else? Marathon. What was that up there? Sports. What else? One more thing. Not giving up. Exactly. I'm kind of heading there. That's good. Good transition. Yeah. When I think of perseverance, I think of people who decide that they want to climb the seven summits. They want to go to every continent on earth and climb to the highest point. I just like, really? You want to do that? You're going to risk your life training yourself and buying gear and, and all these kinds of things. Or marathon runners, people who are like, yeah, I just did a half marathon. It was just a half. I'm like a half marathon. I barely drove a half marathon <laughs> today. Like it's incredible perseverance. I would define perseverance in this way. It's enduring repetitive hardships for the sake of what's hoped for. Enduring repetitive hardships for the sake of what is hoped for. This is the underlying theme of the book of Daniel. How many times is he going to have to go interpret a dream? How many times is he going to have to get before a delinquent king and tell them that the true God is not pleased with them? How many times is God going to allow him to be placed in these situations where he doesn't know how it's going to turn out? That he's going to have to rely on God, right? And this thing that is hoped for, this enduring until the end because we know that there's something else coming after this. Daniel knew he trusted God, and he knew that this isn't how the world was meant to be, but I've got a purpose here for the moment, so I'm going to keep persevering. I'm going to keep pressing on, enduring the same hardships over and over and over again, because I know that God is not done with this kingdom. And we know that Daniel, his perseverance is rooted in a love and in a, in an obedience for God because of what he says in verse 17. Um, verse 17, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Right? So this tells us, the king is saying, I'm going to give you the best I can possibly give you if you tell me what the inscription means. He says, I'm not interested in that. Go ahead and give it to somebody else. Nevertheless, I'm still going to tell you what it means. Why? Because he doesn't serve the king first and foremost. He serves God first and foremost and understands that God had given him an ability to speak into these times. He was more interested in the blessing of God and the purpose of God than simply gaining reward and promotion for himself. He was willing to get in Belshazzar's face and give him the hard word that God is not impressed with you and your time is limited. He was willing to do that even knowing that that would be risking his life because he ultimately knew that his own life, Daniel knew that his own life rested in the hands of the living God. And so his perseverance was rooted 
in who God was, what God had been doing, the things he had seen God do already, and the things that he was hoping for, the unseen things. It was because of his faith in God that he was able to repeatedly persevere. Hebrews 11, chapter 1 gives it, Hebrews 11, verse 1, rather, gives us this amazing definition of faith, that faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. My hope, my personal hope in God is rooted in the testimony of other people. As they tell me what they've seen God do in their lives, as I've seen God move in, in incredibly miracle, miraculous ways in my own life, uh, that increases my hope and it increases my faith. And as that happens, there are still things going on in the world that I'm not going to be able to see, that you're not going to be able to see, but, but my hope is that God has got it all under control, that God is still at work in it all. Jesus even says this incredible thing. He says, blessed are you or, 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 or good for you because you're believing and you have seen these things, but far greater is it going to be for these people who have not seen and yet they still believe. That's what faith is, right? That's what hope is. And so when our, when our faith is rooted in God and what we, what we believe he has done and what we know he can do and what he is doing, our faith is not in the system. Our faith is in God and that he is in work and in control of the system. That's why Daniel could endure and persevere through these repeated hardships. So how about us? Do we have this grass is greener mentality? Well, my boss at my current place of work is just such a terrible person. So I'll just go work somewhere else for another boss and that will make it all better. Or is there a repetition there? And some of you know this. Maybe if you're a millennial, I'll just speak for us for a second. We have this habit of bouncing around until we, we think we're going to find true satisfaction, but we just keep going all over the place, and we're not really finding it because we're never going to find that satisfaction in the boss or in the workplace. We're never going to find the satisfaction in yet another school program or yet another degree. We're not going to find the true satisfaction there. Maybe you go into your place of work, and it's the same repetitive, explicit conversations going around you, right? Maybe at your, while you're at work, the same... Uh, boss keeps giving you the same uh, unethical instructions. Cut these corners, function this way, and you just seem to can't get away from it, right? We can't escape it. Maybe you've got a professor at school who just repeatedly is over and over and over again talking about how anybody who has any belief in God or religious system is just a weak person. And she brings that up every time, and you're just like, again, I've got to go through this? Maybe you're a political person, and as you see uh, various amendments being made or legislation being passed, you're like, that goes completely against what my Christian moral and ethical being is all about. And the question there is, well, are you able to persevere in the midst of this because your hope is in God, or is your hope in the system that the system will eventually change and, and function for us? It seems to me, if we look at a global perspective, that it's in the face of opposition that Christianity blossoms and grows the most, right? And we can go back and we can look at what happened in the book of Acts and we can see that we can take a look at what's happening in the Middle East or in parts of China. Go ahead, make it illegal to worship Jesus and watch how he shows up and is present. Watch how that's happened in Babylon. Watch how it's going to happen in our generation right now as well. As followers of Jesus, we are always going to find ourselves at odds with the culture around us. We have to. We will. We will. Because Jesus, as he prayed for us when he was in the garden before his crucifixion, uh, in a sense, giving us a calling for our lives as Christians, he says, these people, these followers of mine are in the world, but they're not of this world. We live here. We dwell here. We are to work here. We are to raise children here. We are to set up families here. We are to do all these things here. Of course, we are to do that. But we do not look or function or think 
like those in this world. We are to be distinct from that. And so if you remember back a few weeks ago, I talked about this idea of assimilation and isolation. You remember this? Assimilation and isolation. Assimilation essentially means that as Christians, we assimilate to the culture around us. We blend in. We look just the same as everyone around us. Put another way, if we were to videotape a portion of your day, the entirety of your day even, as we videotaped you, if you've assimilated, all we're going to see is a bunch of people on a screen that look all the exact same. There would be nothing about the way you think, talk, act, the places you go, the where you spend your money, how you spend your time. None of that would be any different than the rest of the non-Christian world around you. Now, if you were isolating yourself, if you're pulling yourself away from the culture and saying, I don't want anything to do with this godless culture. I'm just going to be over here with, with Jesus and one or two other people. We're going to be over here. If we were to film you as you ran your day, then it would just be you in the video frame. There'd be nobody else there because you've isolated yourself. You've pulled away. You'd have no interaction with anybody else around you. That's not what we're called to do. As followers of Jesus, at odds with the culture around us, but understanding our position as being in the world, but not of the world, if we were to videotape somebody like that, then what we would see is you interacting with a variety of different people, of different religions and uh, um, economical standing and all these different kinds of socioeconomic standing. You'd be interacting with all sorts of different people. But the difference would be that you are the primary influencer there. That everywhere you go, you are finding yourselves brought into, invited into different circumstances where you get a chance to allow God to break into the world of those around you. You are the one who's walking around influencing others as opposed to being pulled under and influenced by them. All of this, of course, for God's sake. And so Daniel was able to persevere in the midst of the broken, godless Babylonian culture because he knew that God had not abandoned him. And because he knew that God had given him an ability to be in that world but not be a product of it. And the same goes for us. Our ability to persevere in our modern-day Babylon is directly connected to our understanding of our faith and our hope in who God is and what he's doing. And so all along, we've been talking about the character and the faith of Daniel and the three amigos, right? These guys in the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. As we hear the story, we're chapter one. They courageously ask that they not be put under the same requirements and that they have a different diet than the king's diet. In chapter two, they pray to God, save our lives, give us an interpretation. God provides it, they're spared from their execution. Chapter three, they spoke firmly to the king to say that we are not going to bow down to your idols. Go ahead, throw us in a furnace. Go ahead. Chapter 4, Daniel again, with the help of God, interprets the king's dreams. And so as all of this is playing out in, in real time for them, something's happening. And that is, the rest of the people around them are noticing that there is something different about them than anyone else in Babylon. Remember, in our own story, in our chapter today, Daniel was invited into the king's presence. The king maybe heard about him or had forgot about him, but it was his mother who says, there's this guy named Daniel We've got to go find, find him and bring him in because he's got the spirit of the living God inside him and, and he has this wisdom and this intelligence and he's able to solve complicated problems. He had a reputation that went ahead of him. We need to bring him in to this conversation. And so what I'm saying here is that for us today, Christians, followers of Jesus, we actually do truly have the spirit of the living God within us. And as we are going about our day-to-day, -day, enduring the repetitive hardships, enduring these things, we will, by the grace of God and his power and strength alone, stand out to the point where we will find ourselves 
in the place that people are coming to us and saying, hey, what do you think about what's going on in the world right now? You seem to be more level-headed, or you seem to have a, world pers a worldly perspective, not a worldly perspective, but a good understanding and perspective of the world. You seem to have a, a good mind for these things. Or I've got this, this issue in my marriage. Or I've got this problem with my kids. Or I've got this, this, this uh, major uh, argument, this ongoing argument with my, my supervisor or my parents or whatever. Can, you, can we meet up? Can we talk about this? Can we think this through? This is an idea of living that questionable life. Living a life that is always in question. Why are you different? Why, and some people will try and say, that, like, why are you so different? What's wrong with you? But others will, will come and say, can you help me with this? And every time we do, every time we are seen for our faith in God and not in the system, every time we do, we get a chance to point to Jesus. Got a couple of uncles. And uh, uh, when we go to big family parties and things like this, there's one uncle who, um, passionate Christian man, and is always um, doing everything he can to, to force the subject. He always wants to talk about God. He always wants to talk about where people are at at their life. And don't get me wrong, this, these are good characteristics, but I'm mostly talking about the, the, the method which he chooses to employ, which is he'll sit down beside someone and without really maybe even knowing where they're at, he just starts, hey, are you still struggling with that thing? Hey, when's the last time you prayed? Hey, have you been reading your scripture? Hey, have you been? He just starts pounding on him. And what I've begun to notice is that people, when he comes into the room, are just like, right? I happen to get along really well with him for some reason, but, um, which maybe I got to pray and question that in my own life, but, but then there's this other uncle who, um, is always hanging around, having a drink, having a meal, uh, getting to know his family members, their names, their life situations, and all these things. Never have I heard him force the agenda. Even when it comes to, to praying in front of the group, he's got this humble demeanor about him where he just knows that he, he almost questions whether or not he's worthy enough to be praying. And you know what happens? When people in the family go through some incredible hardship, when they start entering into a, an issue or a problem that they cannot solve for themselves, who are they calling? They're calling the second uncle, who's also a Christian man. But they've seen something in his calm demeanor and his calm and consistent faith. And they say, hey, can I ask you a question about this? Because you look like you would be able to give me insight. And sure enough, he gets a chance to speak the good news of Jesus into their lives. And so the same goes for us. As we go about our day-to-day -day trusting in God and not in the system, persevering and going through the exact same story, over and over and over again without giving up and not quitting, people are going to say, hey, hey, can we sit down and talk? There's something in you that I, that I notice. You know, there's this running joke in youth ministry and in camp ministry, and it's that you never should ever pray for patience. The reason for that is as soon as you pray that God will give you patience, he will gladly answer your request by giving you an innumerable and out-of-control amount of situations where you need to be patient. And so that's a bit of a running joke. But I, I actually think that one of the applications for us this morning is that we ought to be praying, God, would you make me look like Daniel looked in his time? Would you make me look like somebody who has wisdom or, or intelligence, not for my own sake, but, but for your sake? So that, that way when people come and say, why are you the way that you are? How do you think the way that you think? Why are you so calm? Why, 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 is your why do you seem so hopeful even though all this stuff is happening? We can point our finger and say, well, I'm like this because my hope is in God and not that the system is ever going to change. 
I think in our culture, we need to look for themes of redemption and rescue and compassion and salvation, and we need to be working those into our conversations on a regular basis. And there'll be something there when we sit at the table with our colleagues or our friends or our family and issues pop up where we're able to even use what's happening in the world of the movies and bring it to make a gospel application. Uh, an incredible verse which sums up this whole idea. But in your hearts, 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Honor Christ. Have reverence for Christ. Honor him and love him above anyone else. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. First Peter was written in the context of persecution. People being forced out of their homes, forced out of their villages and their towns, having to escape for their lives. And he says, honor Jesus more than anyone else. And if you're ever up against a wall, if you're ever in a corner, when someone eventually comes to you and asks, why do you have the hope that you have? Be prepared to give them a reason. But don't fight back. Do that with gentleness and respect. A couple of questions for us to think about as I move to closing in prayer. Practical one. How much do you actually know about the people that God has put into your life? This is a question of relationship. Is it there? Is there a relationship there? Here's another one. Self-diagnostic, right? When's the last time somebody asked you about your faith? And what does that tell you? If you're, f if you're saying to yourself, I'm never being asked about my faith, what does that mean? If you notice that when you walk into a room, other people try to get out, huh, what is that saying about the way that you've been a representative of Jesus? Here's another one. How can you know if you're prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have? What does that mean to you to honor, to revere Christ above all else? What does it mean to, be, to, to talk about the hope that you have? Where is your hope? What is your hope in? Where are you thinking about? What are you thinking about all the time? Uh, you know, this story ends dramatically in that that very night, Darius the Mede came in and Belshazzar was killed. Well, that tells me that there's a, a sense of urgency around this entire conversation. Maybe you are being approached. Maybe you've got that nudge from the Holy Spirit to, to speak hope and to speak life and to speak about your faith to others, but you resist that and you hesitate because you're worried about looking like a fool or being ashamed or whatever. There's an urgency associated that we have no idea what's going to happen next. So how does that play into the way that we live our lives, a questionable life, sold out to God, persevering in our modern-day Babylon, knowing that we don't know how it's going to go next for the person right in front of us, but we trust God completely with the circumstance. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come, and I'm going to pray for us. God um, in heaven, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the, the faith that you allow us to have, that you give us as a gift, actually, for the ways that even though we are repeatedly experiencing the same things, uh, God, you are repeatedly showing up. And I'm stuck, or I'm struck, rather, by you breaking in, even in the midst of, the, of Belshazzar spitting in your face, you broke in and revealed yourself. And there was mercy in that. Maybe you're breaking into somebody's life right now, getting their attention. God, I pray that you would give them the courage and the confidence to ask even somebody sitting beside them, what is this all about? What does this mean? Help me understand. And for those of us that are walking with you, Jesus, I pray that you would walk us into situations where we get to talk about you, where we get to make you look so glorious and so big and so important 
that other people around us uh, are drawn in, not just to us, but, but because they know there's something different about us, really, which is the change you've made in our life. So God, we pray for opportunities to endure. We pray for opportunities to persevere, and we pray for opportunities to play a role in helping others see you. All this, Jesus, we ask and pray in your name. Amen.